Good morning. Today's program is brought to you in part by Pitt Partners for Health. And Pitt Partners for Health is a community health improvement partnership with representatives from local churches, businesses, community, and the hospital. Also the health department and other human services organizations. And the uh, partnership mission is to improve the population health of Pitt County through coalition building and various partnerships. And our guest today is Bonnie Jane Curris. And uh, she's come in to talk about Teddy Bear, which uh, we'll talk about in just a second, but is associated with child sexual abuse and some of the things that we need to know and need to understand. And um, Bonnie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Glad you had a chance to come in and, and talk about this very important topic. A lot of things are happening in this area. We know that is an area where a lot of information that we have is quite often misinformation yes. about that. And we'll get a chance to talk about that. But before we do that, we'll give you a chance to give us your background, your path to your current job and position. Oh, absolutely. Well, I have lived in North Carolina for almost eight years now, uh, formerly of New Hampshire and Massachusetts, where in those days, when I was a brunette and redhead, which you can't see on radio, um, but uh, in those days, I was an elementary middle school teacher as well as building principal uh, and learning and language disability specialist. So that was my previous history before I moved to North Carolina. And uh, when I moved to North Carolina, I decided that uh, I still wanted to impact the lives of children in some way and families in some way, shape, or form, and uh, wanted to see what was out there in regards to supporting families and helping them navigate some challenges that we know uh, happen in their lives. So I was fortunate enough to come across Teddy Bear Children's Advocacy Center, and Teddy Bear stands for Tender Evaluation, Diagnosis, and Intervention for a Better Abuse Response, and they were looking for a community educator or a training specialist who would travel all over eastern North Carolina to uh, help people understand the impact of child sexual abuse, how to identify it, and how to prevent it. And I thought, this is the perfect job for me. I can't wait to be a part of this group, uh, which is uh, basically it's a subspecialty clinic, a pediatrics clinic that uh, is working with ECU uh, Brody School of Medicine, as well as ECU Health. It's kind of a combination package there. And uh, so I was fortunate enough that they saw the value in my experience and started working here about five years ago uh, to be able to do these uh, presentations and trainings all across eastern North Carolina, uh, doing something called Darkness to Light Stewards of Children, the Recognition, Prevention, and Response to Child Sexual Abuse. And I do these trainings for free across uh, about 16 different counties in eastern North Carolina. I do them uh, either virtually or in person. Uh, I have another coworker who does this work with me. Uh, and uh, we have trained in our, in our time span. Well, each year we, we try to train about 1,800 people lot, each yeah. year to, to, to make sure that people get this message out. Uh, as you said earlier, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so we are out telling people and helping people understand that there are things that we can do to eliminate not just decrease, but eliminate child sexual abuse. It's an adult problem we have control over. How serious a problem is 
child sex abuse in Eastern North Carolina? Well, I'm going to tell you, uh, it's pretty significant overall. Um, we see at Teddy, at Teddy Bear Children's Advocacy Center about 600 to 700 children a year, and that's pretty significant. Um, we see a variety of different counties. It's not just Pitt County that we see, but we uh, provide support to a variety of different counties al- along eastern North Carolina. Now, the cases that we see are not just child sexual abuse, but the, uh, we partner with with law enforcement and the Department of Social Services of each of the counties that we work with. Uh, and they could also be cases of uh, physical abuse as well. Uh, do you see any, any trends uh, you know, of individuals? Is, are you across the board, a demographic group, yeah. you know, income levels? I am so glad you asked that question because the answer is, uh, child sexual abuse does not discriminate. Anyone who, you know, we always kind of think about the fact that uh, child sexual abuse may be in, you know, poor, disorganized households, yeah. uh, for lack of a better term, and that's false. Uh, actually, it happens across the board. Uh, what we do know is that 90% of the time, this is a, a statistic mm-hmm. that comes from Darkness to Light Stores of Children, uh, 90% of the time the child knows the abuser. Uh, it's 30% of the time it's a family member. 60% of the time it is someone who is close to the family, trusted by the family, uh, and is someone that the family uh, knows, loves, and potentially cares about. Uh, you mentioned partners just a few minutes ago, and you touched on a few partners. Tell about some of the partners that you work with. I know you say law enforcement is one, but you name some other organizations. Absolutely. Too. Yeah, well, well, Specifically, we partner with law enforcement and the Department of Social Services. Uh, and then we also continue to partner with, um, um, specifically in Pitt County, uh, injury prevention. I, I happen to be a part of the Kids Safe Coalition with Ellen Walston. Uh, we also partner with uh, Pitt Partners for Health. So a lot of their meetings I, I happen to attend or, or present at. We are also partnering with the uh, health department, the Pitt County Health Department department providing trainings for all of the government employees it's they are all invited to any of the trainings that we provide uh, at teddy bear children's advocacy center any of the trainings that we provide are either provided to the public as well it's not just uh, partner agencies uh, such as you know the DJJ or, or the Guardian Ad Litem, but we also work with um, Violence Prevention. We work with Martin Pitt Partnership for Children. Anybody and everybody who may interact with a child, may have been a child, or may someday have a child, that's who I'm reaching out yeah. to. <laughs> uh, you mentioned um, the different organizations, but also we are talking about some of the training. And you mentioned that the training is at no charge to uh, a lot of these programs. Where does the funding come from from for that resources uh, to do the training? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, And I guess the positions are allocated too for you and and your coworkers. Right. Um, We are grant funded, and uh, that is the grant funding is. what we call the Stewards Project, uh, which is funded by the Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS. And so we run this program uh, paid for by uh, that particular grant uh, with a, a program outline that says our goal is is to train uh, 1,200 to 1,800 people a year. And then we uh, do some pre-post data collection to see you know whether they felt that the training was valuable. We take a look at at, you know who is 
who are the individuals that we're training. We work very closely with, again, um, training anybody and everybody who may interact with children. But specifically, we we do do targeted trainings as well, such as uh, working with um, the ECU dental school or ECU nursing, um, all of the different uh, nursing programs in the area with the community colleges. We tend to go in and train um, in the nursing programs. We work with Uh, schools sometimes to help meet the legislative mandate for training in the prevention of the uh, child sexual abuse. And so we help schools also meet that need as well in the counties that we partner with. How do you find examples or hear about examples where sexual abuse is taking place? Does that come through schools, come through law enforcement? Tell us how the information get to you that something that needs to be done. Well, that's a, that's another good question. And <laughs> okay. I'm, well, in the state of North Carolina, anyone 18 years or older is considered a mandated reporter, which means that if you suspect child sexual abuse, you have observed child sexual abuse, or it has been reported to you by that child, um, you are considered a mandated reporter. So you make a call as of as of. Uh, 2020, the new law says you call the Department of Social Services and law enforcement. In the olden days, you would either you would call just the Department of Social Services or law enforcement. But the new law says you're required to call both uh, Department of Social Services and law enforcement. And then the way that a children's advocacy center is structured is that then the Department of Social Services or law enforcement makes a call to Teddy Bear or another children's advocacy center and uh, makes an appointment for that family, for that child who has potentially been abused and their supportive parent to come to the Children's Advocacy Center. And when that happens, law enforcement and the Department of Social Services also comes to that meeting and the child is given the opportunity to tell their story of abuse to a specially trained forensic interviewer. And that interview is something then that the Department of Social Services and law enforcement get to hear at the same time. So it minimizes the number of times the child has to tell that story, reducing the trauma that the child might experience, but it also gives the whole team that's working together in kind of a multidisciplinary approach to um, providing a safety plan for that child or deciding whether or not it needs to be prosecuted. So that's how we keep our numbers. That's how we know... um, you know, what's going on. But in in all actuality, we also know that the research says that most children never report. We know that most children wait uh, at least a year, if not longer. Um, In fact, the average age of someone who uh, talks about their story of abuse, the average age is 52 years old. Yeah, Yeah, so, you know, why do we think that's true? You know, there are some barriers to reporting abuse, uh, and part of that is is our lack of understanding as to um, how it impacts our families and um, 
sometimes those barriers include the children not being believed and a child feeling like they're not going to be believed or that the individual that's doing the abuse has um, threatened the child or confused the child. The child might not even know what's happening to them. Um, we work with a, a number of college students when we are giving our presentations uh, and we, we understand, too, that oftentimes children don't know that they've been abused until they get out of that household and realize that they haven't grown up in the same circumstance that some of their peer group has. So sometimes it's coming to that realization as well. Uh, you mentioned a, a number of agencies and working together. Uh, talk to the importance of these agencies and these organizations working together and coordinating so, so that, as you mentioned earlier, that the person, that the young child, does not have to tell it to four or five different people. Oh, that's a perfect question. And and I'll, I'll use myself as an example because, again, I, I came from the education world and spent about 30 years in education. I know you wouldn't think that to look at me, but um, that is, it is truly the case. And uh, what would normally happen is, is that years and years and years ago, let's say a child would tell their story of abuse to um, the paraprofessional uh, in, or the teacher's aide in the classroom, or they would tell their class teacher. Then the teacher would talk to maybe the school nurse and the school counselor. Those two people would talk to the child. Then maybe the assistant principal would talk to the child. Then the principal would talk to the child. Then the school resource officer would talk to the child. And then DSS would talk to the child. Uh, already, you know, that's about eight people mm -hmm. talking to that child. And each and every time that child was repeating that story, uh, of trauma and, and that story of abuse. But also making that more complex was that that child was interacting with an adult that may be having a different reaction and response to that story. So, uh, for instance, uh, I have um, a pretty... Um, angular face and my face looks kind of stern and so uh, I think they call that the RBF but um, <laughs> you know so I might look kind of stern when when uh, little Jeffrey is telling me about his story of abuse so he might not want to tell me everything because he might think that I'm looking angry at him so as an adult I need to pay, pay attention to what is my facial features and I want to make sure that I'm not asking specific questions that I'm not changing his memory of events. But when you're talking to seven or eight different adults, each adult looks different. Maybe Mrs. Smith, you know, has a very soft and kind face and maybe looks like she's going to cry while he's telling the story to her. And he's, he's going to say, Ooh, she can't handle the truth to steal Tom yeah, Cruise's yeah, right. line, right? She can't handle the truth. So I'm going to change it just a little bit. And what we found is, is that, and, and when I say we, the research has found mm. that, uh, when a child keeps repeating their story of abuse to different adults and the story changes, then we get something called systemic trauma in place because when it gets to the point of being investigated by law enforcement and DSS and they find that there are multiple versions of the story, what's the automatic thing that gets told yeah. to the child or to the victim of abuse? Yeah. It, it, didn't have it right. <laughs> That's it. You don't have it right. You don't. Right. You know, or they might point blank say, "We think you lied." Right. Yeah. And we know, statistically speaking, that less than less than three percent of reports are false. So children don't lie about this. Yeah. Yeah. But we as adults place a judgment 
on there. And the other complexity of that is that if there are seven different stories based on the interaction with seven different adults, uh, when you get to a court of law and they have that reasonable doubt issue, uh, you know, the stories aren't consistent, that creates reasonable doubt and it makes it very hard to prosecute. So the whole goal is, is to reduce that trauma that the child's experiencing from telling it over and over and over again to giving them um, the opportunity to tell it a minimal number of times. And that also allows those important partnerships to hear the story that DSS and law enforcement to hear that story at the same time together. So everybody's hearing the same information. So there's less of that opportunity for um, reasonable doubt. If just joins us, we're talking with Abana Jane Curry. She's a community educator and training specialist with Teddy Bear Children Advocate Center. When we come back, we get a chance to talk to her about some of the training programs and also another part of her responsibility, lifestyle changes and activities for older citizens. Again, listen to the ECU Health Headline Program and also partner with Pitt Partners for Health. Welcome back in this ECU Health Headlines program, and our guest today is Bonnie Encourage. She's community educator and training specialist with Teddy Bear Children Advocacy Center. And uh, Bonnie, uh, tell us again, uh, what is Teddy Bear and um, role in, in our community? Oh, absolutely. Teddy Bear stands for Tender Evaluation, Diagnose, and Intervention for a Better Abuse Response. And we're a small subspecialty pediatrics clinic based out of the uh, ECU Brody School of Medicine and ECU Health. And the only way children get through our doors is through an active investigation of abuse. And Parents can't just pick up the phone and say, hey, I would like my child to be seen. The, the folks that make the uh, referrals to our clinic are actually uh, law enforcement officials or the Department of Social Services who are actually doing the investigation of abuse of any kind. Uh, overall. And then the parents and the Department of Social Services and law enforcement attend the meeting and the interview, what we call a a specially um, trained forensic interviewer, will talk to the child and the parents and the teams of DHH, uh, excuse me, of uh, DSS, which is the Department of Social Services and Law Enforcement, will uh, meet together and talk about what the concerns are, and uh, law enforcement and DSS get to uh, listen to, you know, what's going on and hear the stories all at the same time, which means that it gives the child um, the a minimum number of times they need to tell their story of abuse, which then can reduce their trauma response, uh, but it also allows for the story to stay consistent, allows law enforcement or the Department of Social Services uh, to take action based on what they're hearing. They're hearing it at the same time, and that minimizes what we would call systemic trauma, where sometimes if uh, the child has told the story many, many times, um, it's not necessarily consistent based on who they're interacting with, and uh, allows it to stay more consistent and reduces that systemic trauma of being told you haven't told the truth or you've been mistaken because of the inconsistencies in the story. So it really reduces that, what we would call systemic trauma. And how serious is child abuse? It is serious. One in 10 children by the time they are 18 years of age will be potentially sexually abused. And let's get to talk about the various training programs that you oversee. I know you were talking about for 
uh, experts and those who are in that area, but you also talk about programs for parents, kind of break the pr training programs down and those specific groups that may have to receive, or may need to receive that training? Absolutely. Well, I start off by saying that any of the trainings that we give anybody and everybody who has a nervous system or has any interaction with children or may someday have interaction with children or who may have been a child are welcome <laughs> to take these trainings. We want to get this information out to anybody and everybody. So that is why our trainings are at no cost. Any training we give, there is no cost for it. We provide public trainings each month and uh, we do that in a couple of different ways. Our public trainings are specific to the recognition, prevention, and response to child sexual abuse uh, through a program called Stewards of Children, Darkness to Light, Stewards of Children. And we do that either virtually or in person. When more often than not, we do those once a month for the public. But then we also partner with anybody and everybody. So if you came from a faith-based organization and said, Bonnie Jean, can you train our leadership? Can you train our congregation? I would say, yes, I will be happy to come to your church. I will be happy to come to your, your house of faith and train your people. We have done that as well. We, we will train anybody and everybody who asks overall on the recognition, prevention, and response to child sexual abuse because our goal is, is preventing, decreasing and preventing child sexual abuse because it's an adult problem that we have control over. Over, and we can actually do something about these statistics and minimize child sexual abuse. The other trainings that we provide are also in relation to how do we prevent child maltreatment. So we have a variety of things on, on our list, um, specifically uh, something called Reconnect for Resilience or um, Community Resiliency Model. These two types of trainings are trainings that are specific to helping people recognize when they are experiencing a stress response in their bodies. Because socially speaking, for so long, we've been told to keep calm and carry on, right? And when we're told to do that, we end up tamping down our stress response. And that stress response actually ends up getting stored in our body organs, our heart, our liver, our lungs, our head, our digestive system, and doing some damage. We train people in, in understanding what is going on in their bodies and what the stress response may actually physically feel like using the five senses and how do we then um, help change that stress response and complete the stress response so that adrenaline and cortisol is not stored in the body organs. And when that happens, you're actually becoming more well. You'll walk through the world more well. You'll be in what we would call your resilient zone where you can be connected with other people, specifically children, uh, which means that we are also working towards uh, preventing child maltreatment as well. We offer little smaller trainings related to that completion of the stress response. We call it how not to get tased or phased by trauma or lightening your load or sometimes the gift of gratitude or um, one that I just whipped up for our pit partners for health uh, for tomorrow is honoring the new year with hope, happiness, and health. Uh, so we do these, these kinds of mini trainings or big trainings depending on what people want. 
we work with anybody and everybody. Uh, right now, I just finished working with some teachers at Pitt, Pitt County Schools, as well as Beaufort County Schools. I pretty much go where anybody asks me to come, uh, be, all for the sake of uh, child abuse and child maltreatment prevention. prevention. You also work with uh, promoting positive lifestyle changes with older adults, which is a total, <laughs> seems to be a total t- different topic altogether. Totally together. different topic, but it still <laughs> relates to that resilience component. Uh, what we know is is that you know y- you don't necessarily need intervention to to be healthy. We can we can do some of our own intervention. This is a public health response to you know mental health needs overall. And so we provide a very basic structure in which we help people recognize when their nervous systems are out of balance. And so um, my friend Mary Hall from um, Pitt Partners for Health, she asked if I would come and speak to her seniors. And so we decided that we would um, whip up a, a little little presentation for them regarding honoring the new year with hope, happiness, and health. And specifically, it's all about health-promoting lifestyles for adults, older adults, 55 to you know, beyond Mm -hmm. overall. And understanding that um, older adults can be targeted to, to talk to them about their health and how to improve their health, even though we're getting a little older. Because actually what research is telling us is that older adults um, report that more frequently, they are um, seeking out positive health behaviors. Older adults are doing this um, better than their 35-year-old counterparts sometimes. So, you know, why don't we focus on that a little bit? And uh, so one of the things that we're going to be doing is really looking at what it is that promotes healthy lifestyle for older adults, what, um, what keeps older adults going overall you know what what keeps their engine running and a lot of it has to do with hope and connection those two are incredibly key for staying healthy and being connected whether that is um, spiritually connected with um, with with religion or connected with friends and family Uh, another piece of that is uh maintaining purpose, uh, purpose in our lives and knowing, you know, why we're here and what we're going to do while we're here and, and realizing that even though we're getting to be older and I put myself in that category as well, because I'm a, I'm a silver haired (laughs) maven, um, that, you know, we have purpose regardless of how old we are and that we have wisdom that we can share with others through connection. And how do we do that? And, and then how do we do that and stay healthy? Healthy at the same time. Well, when we do that, we actually can maintain our health and look forward to exercising, eating well. We do the things that we probably wouldn't do that that are good for us if we have um, meaningful relationships and hope um, for uh, our purpose in life. And uh, our time has run out, uh, Brother Dean. But give us, I give you a chance to give us some closing comments as we leave the air for the session. Well, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that anybody and everybody is welcome to take any of the trainings that we provide. And if you would like to uh, reach out to me, contact me, go ahead, just type in your browser, uh, Teddy Bear Children's Advocacy Center, T-E-D-I, 
B-E-A-R, and you will get to their website, and you can uh, find me, you can email me, feel free to do that, uh, call the office if you want to talk about ske- scheduling some trainings, and I will be happy to work with anyone and everyone for the sake of our kids. Well, thank you again for coming in and talking about this very important topic. Our guest debate today has been Bonnie Jean Curtis. She's community educator and training specialist with Teddy Bear, which is the South Africa Center, and I want to thank her again for her time. I'm Mark Woodson.